invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Our reading today will be verses 15 through 20. You can find the passage on page 983 in the Pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along there, please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious passage before us today. Would you reveal Jesus Christ to us more today than we've ever known before so that we might reflect his image as his image bearers even as we leave this place and interact in the world? Change us, conform us, more to your word we ask now in this time. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. The doctrine of Christ has been a source of much debate uh, throughout millennia since just after Christ's coming. There have been many heresies and issues that have arisen over this doctrine. Certainly it is the central point of deviation from most other religions from Christianity and in particular also many cults that even in our day and age call themselves Christian. But when they deviate from this doctrine, you know that they're not. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the sustainer. Jesus is above all. Jesus is over all. Jesus is more than enough. Our doctrine of Christ must be solid and unshakable. We cannot give an inch on who he is or the whole thing comes crumbling down. The verses before us pop off of the page. Very distinct from the language of the letter that has come before and what comes after. They stand out alone as something special, something different. Many scholars believe that because of its grammatical structure that Paul is quoting an early hymn of the church. Whether it existed before Paul's writing or if he was writing it in the context of this letter cannot be certainly known. But in either case, it's been used through the ages of the church in the church's worship to express in a compact, poetic form, the nature of Jesus Christ. 
It's in our rotation of Confessions of Faith here at St. Andrews, and as you might imagine, we'll be using it a good bit in the weeks to come. Due to the richness of this passage, we're going to divide it and spend two weeks unpacking it. The hymn has two sections, the first in verses 15 through 17, which focus our attention as to Christ as the creator of all things, and then verses 18 through 20, which focus our attention to Christ as the redeemer of that creation and the redeemer of his people. We'll explore that next Sunday. Why would Paul place a hymn within the context of his letter? And why would he place it at this point in the letter, at the very beginning, before he begins to give instruction and correction within the body of the letter? Well, we can only really speculate, but there are some, I think, logical conclusions that we can come to based on the remainder of the letter and the things that he unpacks for us. First, I believe that Paul is establishing right up front the gold standard of knowing who Jesus Christ is. There was a lot of confusion about this. As we talked in last week, a lot of add-ons in Colossae. And so he wanted to lay a foundation. And throughout the letter, Paul is going to refer back to this hymn many times as he unpacks his instruction and the truths of the letter. Secondly, Paul understood the power of hymns to convey biblical truth to the hearts of God's people. Later in chapter 3, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Have you ever considered that one of the primary functions of our singing congregationally in church, in addition to offering praise to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is for the purpose of teaching and admonishing one another with scriptural truth. We're going to explore this, as you might imagine, much more in depth when we get to chapter 3 in that portion of the letter. But in this context, Paul clearly knew the power of hymns, of songs, to shape our beliefs about who God is. And in this case, specifically, the Lord Jesus. Take, for instance, our hymn of confession today, in Christ alone, that we just sang. Incidentally, this hymn has become the most popular hymn in the worldwide church today. It is this generation's amazing grace, or how great thou art. You might ask, well, how do you know that? Well, for one, because it is the most requested hymn for both funerals and weddings. Two of the most important moments in believers' lives. Clearly, it has grabbed the hearts of believers with its profound theology about who Jesus is and because of its heart and emotional impact as well. Look at the text. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. 
This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. And that's just one of four verses. What an amazing hymn filled with scriptural allusions about who Jesus is. Much of it found right here in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Enabling us in both spirit and in truth to teach and admonish one another as we are in the pew together singing to one another. It's a powerful confession of faith. And Paul begins his teaching and admonishing of the Colossian church with a powerful hymn-like expression of the nature of Christ, something the Colossians could hang their hat on for the remainder of the letter as he unpacked it. So let's dive in. Reading again in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The hymn begins by declaring that Christ is the image of God, the invisible God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, speaking of God, says this, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. The great masters of religious art of the Renaissance and beyond who have given us their paintings of God as an old man with long flowing white hair and a long white beard have done us a great disservice in depicting him that way. For God is neither male nor female. He is neither old nor young. For God is spirit. He does not have a body like we do. We teach our children that from the various early age. This invisible God stooped to take on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews begins that long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So if you can't say it of Christ, then it is not of God. Everything it is to be the Father, we can say of Jesus Christ. Some of you will remember that on Maundy Thursday this year, we looked at Jesus' conversation with his disciples in John chapter 14 conversation that happened in the upper room on the night Jesus was betrayed when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And in that setting, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Let's give Philip a little bit of credit 
at least he understood that if he could know the invisible God, that that would be enough for him. But where he missed the boat was Jesus claims to be God. And that knowing Jesus meant that Philip had already seen God in the person of Jesus. Later in chapter 2 of this letter to the Colossians, Paul says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I can't wait to get to that passage. Chew on that for a minute. The whole fullness of deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and everything that means dwells in Jesus bodily. One of the mind-blowing gifts to us in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is this reality, that the invisible God became visible. The uncontainable took on the container of a body. The one who is otherworldly became part of his created world. Praise God that since Jesus Christ is the very imprint and image of God, we can be in personal relationship with the Father. If you want to know the Father, look to Jesus. Study him, his nature, his character, because he is the image of the invisible God. Intimacy with him is intimacy with the Father. So as we come to fellowship with him at his table today, seek to know him in his fullness. The second point in the outline, Jesus is more than enough as creator for he is the firstborn of all. In verse 15, again we read and concluding it, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In the fourth century, Arius promoted a heresy in which he proposed that the Son had a beginning, that he was born or created by the Father at some point before the creation of the universe. This was one of the texts that he used to reinforce his position. But the irony of that is that in just two more verses, as we will see in a moment, this hymn reinforces the eternality of Jesus. The sense of the language here is not that of time, but rather of position. The emphasis is not that Jesus was created first before the rest of creation, but rather that he is positionally above all that is in the universe and has firstborn status with God the Father. The Nicene Creed, which we use often in our worship, was written to counter Arius' heresy And it says that of the Christ, that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Well, another logical argument that we could make from all of this for the eternality of the Son is the eternality of the Father. If God is an eternal Father, then it follows there must be an eternal Father. Son. Today we celebrate Father's Day. If you're a father, 
you have to have a child. This is just basic logic and understanding. Otherwise, God would have become a father when the son was created, thereby making the nature of God changeable. Well, even the cults that deny the deity of Christ and his eternality would not put up with that kind of theology in terms of the changeableness of God. So, the next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, remember that. The third point in the outline is Jesus Christ is the creator of all. In verse 16 we read that, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When reading this, I think nearly any student of the Bible would be drawn on that first phrase to the very first verse of the whole of Scripture. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is being identified here as the divine creator, the one who created all things. God himself. Additionally, this hymn echoes the Apostle John's account of Jesus at creation in the first chapter of his gospel, where he describes Jesus as the eternal logos, the word that spoke all creation into existence. John chapter 1 begins, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's about as definitive a statement as you could make in relation to Jesus Christ, the eternal word, being the creator of all things. Jesus is more than enough as creator. The Colossians hymn leaves no room for any part of the creation to slip through the cracks. Visible and invisible, heaven and earth, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is preeminent over all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. The final point in the outline, Jesus is more than enough as creator because he is the sustainer of all. Reading in verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In regard to that first phrase, he is before all things, Albert Barnes in his commentary says that it was equivalent to saying that he was eternal. For he that had an existence before anything was created must be eternal. This affirms the eternality of the Son that Arius was denying, as we talked about earlier. Paul continues, or the the hymn continues, and in him all things hold together. 
When you put these together, the beauty of the totality of this verse is that Jesus Christ is not a distant God who created the universe, set it spinning, and stepped back to see what would happen. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus holds in tension every atom of the created universe. If he were to let go and abandon his creation, it would all cease to exist in a moment. He cares about his creation. He is not removed, but rather infinitely involved in every aspect. In Christ, the universe has a purpose in everything. Some pastors and theologians today try, in my mind, in vain, to get God off the hook for the suffering and natural calamity that takes place in the world. That somehow these negative things out there are not part of God's will for our lives or for the world. But God doesn't allow us to do that in his word. He is sovereign over everything. And trust me, you don't want to even contemplate a God who isn't sovereign. A God who is simply reacting to the calamities and the issues that are happening in the world. That would be a bad place to be. Rather, the God of the Bible is working in everything according to his eternal counsel of his will, for his glory. All of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the sin, all of the sickness, all of it has purpose. There is a plan. And the Son of God causes everything to propel forward, and he holds the universe together. Again, back to Hebrews 1 and continuing from the verse we read earlier. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Commentator Douglas Moo says that Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being. And he stands at its end as the goal of the universe. So what bearing do these truths about Jesus have to do with me and where I am in my life today? If Jesus is more than enough as creator, then he is more than enough to sustain you. If Jesus is sovereign over every aspect of his universe, then he is sovereign and in control of every detail of your life. This one who supports the universe by the word of his power supports you, his people, too. He is enough to be the singular source of your life here on earth and for all eternity. This should bring great comfort to us as we walk through this 
very difficult existence. The world offers us the good life, doesn't it? Grab the brass ring, pursue the American dream. Of course, the longer you live and the older you get, you come to understand that the good life that the world offers ultimately disappoints and fades away. But Jesus offers true life in him. The world and the devil offer to you false means of grace to sustain your life. Don't settle for the cheap imitation because Jesus the creator offers us his eternal means of grace, carrying with them the power of changing in holiness and glory. So embrace him in his fullness as the word has presented him to you today. And embrace him at the table of fellowship before us as we feast upon him in faith. And as we think on Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, who delights to sustain and uphold his universe, consider how much more he must delight in sustaining and upholding his children. Isn't it incredible that this eternal one who is above and before all of his creation invites us to supper? A supper not for our physical nourishment of our bodies, but one for the spiritual nourishment of our souls by his very presence among us. A sacrament that he uses in us for his holy purposes. In conclusion, let's take look again at the first chapter of John's gospel. In the verses following those that we read earlier, starting in verse 9, speaking of Jesus... John writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We see two responses in these verses to Jesus the creator that John proclaims. The world's response, which included his own people, and the response of his children, those who receive him. If you find yourself in the first category, one who is still of the world, rejecting the claims of Jesus on your life, then do not come to the table today, for that would show disdain for the Son of God. And you don't want to do that. But instead, 
Think about what the Word of God has proclaimed today. Focus upon what you've heard and what you've seen and what you will see in the sacrament. And if you sense the Spirit of God pursuing you, call out to him in faith. Turn from your sin and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you're a Christian but are embracing sin instead of Christ and you're unwilling to deal with it right now, then you should abstain too until you're ready to forsake your sin and embrace Jesus as he's presented to us. This table is open to those who have made their public profession of faith in Christ and are communing members of a gospel-preaching church. So if that's you, then no matter the state of your mind or heart today, if you're willing to confess your sin and to look to Jesus alone, then come and dine and be strengthened. Because Jesus is more than enough for you. In your desperation, find in his fullness grace upon grace for all of your needs. He is here. He is ready to meet you where you are, and he is ready to minister his grace to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we have exalted and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ today because there is nothing but for us to do that in light of who he is and what he has done for us. And how beautiful that after exalting this one who is the eternal creator, the eternal son of God, light of light, God of God, God himself, that we also focus upon our relationship with him, that he stoops and comes to us in the flesh as our savior and provides for us this meal from his table to strengthen us, to strengthen us in our weariness, in our struggle against sin, in our struggle to be Christ-like. So, Father, would you be pleased to use this time now to strengthen us and to show us more of Jesus that we might reflect him and that we might grow in grace, in holiness, and that we might reflect your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.